0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Okay, so go ahead and take your Bibles. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to continue there, Philippians chapter 3. I think I may have told you last week uh, the transition between chapter 2 and 3 is probably the most clear uh, cut-and-dry transition of the book so far, some of the other breaks that you have found as far as the thought, as far as the topic shift, as far as that sort of thing, uh, previous to this division here from 2 to 3, have been kind of smack in the middle of chapters. For example, chapter 1 and verse 27 started a section that carried itself through chapter 2 and verse 11. That's just one way of looking at that. And then from chapter 2 and verse 12, you had yet another thought process that goes as far as basically through verse 16, albeit there may even be a small division with just 12 and 13 standing along, and then 14 through 16 being another section, and then 17 through verse 30 of chapter 2 being yet another section. Of course, I hope that as we went through that that I tried to give you a little bit of an outline, a little bit of a thought that you can follow. I know back uh, it's been uh, 13 weeks ago now, I gave you some printed outlines that could assist with that, but I've continued myself personally at least to add to those, to evolve those uh, somewhat. But basically, the section that we're in, chapter 3, carries with it so many different ideas, and what we are basically in the middle of, I would say smack in the middle of right now, are talking about Paul's cautions, the things that Paul has cautioned the brethren there in Philippi about. And of course, that really bears itself out right in the very beginning of it, particularly in verse 2 when he calls upon the people in Philippi to beware of the dogs. Of course, by speaking about the dogs, he's speaking about people who are vicious and not necessarily just flat-out mean, but they're vicious in the attacks and in the um, things that they would say. I think in the context, if you want to put it in context of some other of Paul's writings, other New Testament books, he's probably pointing to what we refer to now looking back as the Judaizers basically a people who are uh, carryovers from the Jews, uh, now claim themselves to be Christians. However, particularly when it comes to attacking the Gentiles, remember the gospel according to the mystery of God, Ephesians chapter 3, has been opened up to both Jew and Gentile now. Both of those groups are more than welcome to come to Christ through obedience, to put away the old law, and to begin to practicing what we call, or refer to as the new law, or the law of Christ. God's opened the gate on that Jew and Gentile. He represented that happening, not that he hadn't offered it already, but it's represented completely as coming to fruition in Acts chapter 10 with the household of Cornelius. Again, open before that, but that's that occasion when we see a Gentile actually doing that. He's crossing those lines, coming along beside those former Jews, and that's what they should have known themselves as, former Jews, up and to be with the Christians. But, of course, there were many who reject that. And a lot of these Judaizing teachers, uh, Pharisaical types at least, not all of them were Pharisees, but Pharisaical types uh, would have looked at the Gentiles particularly, and they liked to try to bind things on them. They like to probably walk up to them and say something to the effect of, look, you can be a Christian if you want to, but if you're coming from the Gentiles, you need to be circumcised first. Well, the problem with that is that wasn't required under the new law. Jew or Gentile or none of the like. It wasn't a spiritual, a uh, religious type of requirement at that point. And so to bind that along beside of them was obviously wrong. And it would only be sinful for them. And I don't believe that's the only thing they had ever did. We know that that takes place. Uh, We think about or speak about what we call or refer to as the the Jerusalem council. Well, we know that that was a problem. But I think and know that there were so many other things... Uh, that they were coming in and just, I think, more or less picking and saying, okay, so I find out you've now been circumcised like I told you you need to be. Now how about you keep this feast or how about you do this? And they just seemingly kept stacking issues and other things on top of really all of these uh, Christians, trying to bind that, but particularly, I think, to the Gentiles and pointing that out. And so when Paul says, verse 2, beware of dogs... Then he speaks of the same group and says, beware of evildoers. And then of the same group, beware of the concision. He's talking about those people that are causing problems because of their binding or their mistreatment or the abuses or the additions that they're trying to make to the law of Christ. And, of course, these people, I've said it before in description, uh, probably look like a red robin on a spring day. I mean, they probably have their chest poked out. They were very similar to what other books, particularly the book of Colossians, which is not a parallel to the Philippian letter, but written around the same time frame, what would have been referred to um, as, uh, yeah, that thought just shot right over there somewhere. Colossians, uh, I don't know. That's pretty good, ain't it? Yeah, welcome to middle age, I guess. Not, Not late age yet, but middle age. Anyway, I'll think about that in a moment. But um, not Judaizers, but very much similar to that in their attitude, their mindset. Heretics is another way of saying that, but I'm, I'm speaking there of Colossians chapter 2. And the division that was caused there by these same groups or same types of people. But he says, beware of the dogs. And, of course, that reference, uh, many times the Jews would have seen the Gentiles as being nothing but a dog. And dogs weren't kept in houses as pets. They were just random wild animals, more or less, in that day, or at least seen as such, like we might see a coyote. Uh, But nonetheless, Paul turns this around and says, okay, uh, so they would like to call you a dog. They're the dog. They're the people who are causing issues. So his caution, you might even call that his concerns, come in. Of course, verse 3 explains exactly what that was. Concerning circumcision and their binding of such. We've already just referenced there. And he says the latter part of verse 3. He said, um, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul, why would you say that? Because the next few verses explain to us that many of them seemingly had a lot of confidence in the flesh. And you keep up the reading there, verse 4. He said, though I might also have confidence in the flesh... If any other man thinketh that he whereof he may trust in the flesh, I more. Now I've got written in my margin here just for my understanding of it. This is Paul one-upping these people. He's trying to show the brethren who are there looking and watching as well as these people that I I, I can know with confidence he would have spoken to -to face-to-face if he were not doing it in this letter, letting them know that if you had a reason to boast... If anything you have accomplished, anything that you have inherited as far as your heritage and your family lineage, if that were a place for boasting or putting your confidence, I could do better than you. And I got to looking at some of those words today, and it almost seems as if Paul, and I'm I'm paraphrasing this for my understanding's picture, it's like Paul stands up and says, okay, if any of you or all of you put together want to boast, and you want to have confidence, come right up here. Come on with it. He brings them in and he challenges them. Why? Because when he starts listing what we might call the pedigree that he has, it is really ungetoverable. What he possesses or what he could take claim to, which we know why he's going to say that he's going to count it all but loss, he actually could one-up or stand ahead of everybody else. And he starts with that list, and this is where we were closing out last week, He says, first of all, he was circumcised the eighth day. Of course, circumcision on the old law that was, you know, eventually required of the Jews and such, that circumcision typically, according to God's command, took place on the eighth day. Why is that as far as what we've learned about the old law? Why would God have chosen or seemingly scientifically, medically chosen the eighth day? What have we heard about that? Have you heard anything about it? I've heard it be explained in the medical world that on the eighth day, for whatever reason, the vitamin K levels, the clotting abilities, all this, it's just almost, No, I don't want to use that word, well, it could have been, almost seemingly were miraculously at their highest levels. Meaning, you know, statistically, medically, these sort of things, supposedly, on the eighth day, those clotting factors were at their peak, not the seventh. Not the knife. just worked out that way. And so the claim is, if that's correct, I'm not proving or couldn't prove, I'm not a doctor to prove such, but the claim is that that made it an ideal day to commit that act of circumcision just for the fact that the blood would clot and that would begin to heal. So I've been told. So I've understood and found that in numerous resources. You say, well, wait a minute, now, you know, I had a baby boy, and he was circumcised, but I remember they did that before he left the hospital. Yes, they did, after they gave him a, a dose of some different things, but including of that vitamin K. So they bring the level up, they circumcise the boy, lickety split, you go home. Potential for that, okay? In this time, though, Paul's not bragging about whether or not he was able to heal Paul is just making the statement. Look, the way that God said do it, it was done. So I'm one of the, uh, for lack of better terms, I'm a purebred Jew. Things were done specifically after God's instruction and after his command. That's the first thing. Second one here, he says, circumcised the eighth day. Then he says specifically out of the stock of Israel. Now what's the significance of that? Who were God's chosen people of the Old Testament? Those, of the, those out of the stock of Israel. And Paul doesn't claim to be uh, half Israelite and half, you know, half Jew, half Gentile. You know, it's spoken of Timothy and says of him that his father was a Jewess. What do we think about that? Well, the mother may have been a Greek. Not, not Paul. Paul has, has been born into the family of the ones who did things properly. He even advances that one more notch and says they're still in verse 5 out of the stock of Israel and then even the tribe of Benjamin. Was the tribe of Benjamin significant? To an extent, absolutely. Because of that factor of no other. King Saul came out of the tribe of Benjamin. The first king that God allowed to be appointed. You have to say allowed because, remember, God, God pretty much presented them, no, you really don't need a king, you don't want a king, but they kept asking. So God allows and then even finally chooses that king for them, and that was King Saul. And that came from the stock of the tribe of Benjamin. Later on than that, much farther than that, when the children of Israel uh, have made or way, not not farther than that. But when the children of Israel made their way into the Promised Land, the tribe of Benjamin and in their inheritance was more inclusive of basically the the area around Jerusalem, and and some of the better you know better areas, temples and such as that were built and, and established there, holy cities, that sort of thing. And so Paul says, you know, well look, I was out of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he adds this phrase, verse five, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, again, continues to point to his lineage, completely of pure bloodline. If you would put it this way, in the way that some people talk today, Paul had papers. And I mean by that like a, like a dog would have papers, where you can say, okay, I can trace his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother back, that was a hush puppy hound, or something like that, where you could trace all that back, and he could say, look, you can't argue with me, I am a Jew. And and many of these people remember what they were doing. Just back up the page there in verse 2 through 4. They were applying some of the Jewish Old Testament laws trying to push them on Christians and and probably boasting all the while at that. You know, I don't want to give up my Jewish lineage. Again, we were God's chosen and and we still remain as that. We just now serve Him through Christ. So keep this or bind that. Paul said, no, I'm more than that. Out of the Hebrews, I was the Hebrew. Now, honestly, who was the Hebrew out of the Hebrews? Who would you refer to if you were to choose somebody? Abraham. He's the father of those people, the father of those nations. He's the father of the faithful, as he's referred to even in the New Testament. So Paul almost points directly back toward him. So his bragging rights, if he had that, his boasting rights, his... Pedigree, whatever you would call that, he says, I, I've got all of that. And then he adds there in verse 6, concerning zeal, what does it mean to have zeal? We have another word, zealous. What does that mean? Gung-ho is, is a perfect description for us folks. Uh, gung-ho, to be energetic, to be enthusiastic, to be willing to, to go and do And Paul says, and it's interesting the way he proves this, because this would be Paul's biggest failure, actually. And probably the thing, I know it's the thing, because he wrote about it a few different times, but the thing that would be the most regretful part of his life, how did he prove he was zealous right here in this verse? He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul says, I was so zealous. I wanted to serve God so badly that when this entire, and I'm looking at it from his perspective perhaps in that day, when this entire sect of people began to rise up and and proclaim that Christ was the Messiah and that he was going to establish his church and they were going out and teaching and preaching baptism and such. Remember, Paul was initially in that apostle, apostle group that was chosen. He wasn't initially in that. So that had gone on for a period of time before Paul comes on the scene. Once he does, of course, he's brought into it directly by Jesus as he met with him on the road to Damascus and then was sent into, uh, on, on into Damascus to have instruction given. But even during that period of time, Paul was persecuting the church. He was doing the very thing that according to Jesus, there again in that record, Acts chapter 7, but culminating in chapter 9... He was doing exactly what stood against the church, stood against the Christians, and ultimately stood against God. Now, Jesus, most in person, but God. And so Paul basically just proved himself by saying, I was so zealous, unknowingly now, he did everything according to what he told, uh, was it Agrippa or Felix, one of the two, or or those those councils at least. He did everything in good conscience now. He did what he thought he should do. But he stood in the face of God and denied him. Now, again, if you clarify that and step back from that, even in their shoes, you have to say, wait wait a minute. We wouldn't defy God. He said, I did. I stood against his church because I believed that was what should be done. Why, Paul? Because I was circumcised the eighth day. Because I was out of the shock of Israel. Because I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Because I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's why and I skipped one, I just saw it right there. He said, as touching the law, a Pharisee. This is verse 5, the last word I missed. An extremist, basically. Uh, were the Pharisees bad people? No, not, not, not in reality. Not, not when you boil it all down, strain it through the funnel and the colander, and it comes down in the bowl. Not actually they were just much like Paul. They were much like Paul in that they were zealous for their cause, and that when they did not, for whatever reason, fully grasp, I can't say understand, I'm not sure if they did, but they didn't seem to grasp or didn't seem to accept that Jesus was that promised Messiah, which they knew well the law and the prophets. When they didn't accept that, they too stood in some senses against this early church. And they even stood on earth directly against Jesus. Why? They didn't want to accept him. They were the ones slipping in and out all the while everywhere Jesus went. Somebody from that group, the Pharisees, showed up and challenged Jesus through temptation and through questions and all sorts of things. But they, at their core, were extremists, legalists, whatever you want to call that, But they, much like Paul, would have done such, most of them at least in good conscience. Now, there came a point once the church had been established where many of those Pharisees were still hanging out, hanging around. I think it really, a lot of it, probably probably many of them, were not completely ignorant as much as they were just proud. You know, what importance ultimately would the high priest have after Jesus' death? Or the priest in general. You can do this right here. Not a bit. But they held on to such. They continued to carry on some of those uh, traditions and positions for some time. So the Pharisees weren't necessarily uh, bad people. But what they were committing was just as sinful as the Apostle Paul. But he says, I was uh, such as or as one of those of uh, the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees had many documents. You've heard much of this type of thing before. There that many documents, particularly a, a grouping of, of documents slash books, uh, referred to, I think, as the Talmud. If I hadn't got that flipped. They consisted of 63 books that basically explained something from the Old Testament. Ten Commandments. They basically, yes, explained the first five books as well, the law. But basically, they took the Ten Commandments as revealed by God and took it and expanded and expanded and expanded. You say, well, they were innocent. That was like writing a commentary. Well, I mean, yeah, to an extent. But they bound those things. They bound those things. Matter of fact, of that Talmud, it consisted of more than, and I don't know, when I say pages now, it doesn't have to be eight and a half by 11, letters, you know, letter size or whatever. Just pages, all I know to, to refer to it as. It consisted of over 2,700 pages front and back, and they didn't single space and, and, and punctuate and all of such as we do, of just documents to explain that law, to bind the things that they wanted to bind. And so many times during Paul's letters, he has to tell people, you know, watch out for these people binding the the eating or taking of meats. Watch out for those people who are binding on you a certain feasts and moons and such as that, and the worship of such. Uh, watch out for those people who, right here, are calling for you to be circumcised and such, because the Pharisee would do that. Paul said he was even amongst those type of people. Now, so I skip that back into verse six concerning zeal persecuting the church. That's his proof, and then he says, touching righteousness. Which is in the law, blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? We've seen that word up the page, actually. It means you can't, nothing sticks. Can't be held accountable. You can't make an accusation and that accusation stick and then someone stand back and say, well, he ought to be tried for that, he ought to be judged, he ought to be punished, whatever. Those things don't stick. As a matter of fact, blameless, we saw it earlier, uh, means that it, it, there's no handles for criticism. Nothing can latch on. Nothing can hold on in that case. And Paul says, now, you know, we, we say many times or refer to it, I don't think we're wrong in doing so. but we say no one could ever have kept the law of Moses completely and fully. Is that accurate? More than likely. But, and, and well, probably, probably. But in this generalization, this list of things that Paul is just rapid fire putting out to these people to get ready to set them up to try to understand what it means to be a Christian. Not to be a Jewish Christian or not to be a Hebrew Christian but to be a Christian. He presents to them that concerning the law and righteousness blameless. Now verse 7. But... And there are a lot of buts in the Bible. This is the, biggest, this is the biggest one in this context. He says, in contrast to that, me and Cameron last night, he had to study for his English exam. And uh, it was parts of speech. I mean, he's like I am, though, struggle, struggle, struggle. So we went through, and I said, what's a conjunction? He wouldn't like me telling us. He said, okay, then we've been talk about that. Uh, there were other parts of speech, but that was one that I kind of, I, what, you don't know? He was just stumbling around because I'd thrown so much at him, I think. But this is the contrast. But, verse 7: What things were gained to me, those things I counted lost for Christ? What things are gained to me? Those things I counted lost for Christ. Now he's going to expand on that obviously in the next few verses. But he just set more or less, uh, aside from ill will perhaps, but more or less he just set these folks up. Because if you've ever met anyone, uh, well if you've ever looked in the mirror you might have seen, I've looked in the mirror and seen this prideful guy. But if you've met anyone who's who's prideful and they have that one-up attitude, you know anything you anything you want to tell anything you want to say. Well, yeah, I, I'm like that too. But mine was, and you know, their story's a lot Their Fish was bigger. Their deer was was more horn. You know, more antlers. And that's hype. Generally speaking, if if they are that type of character, when you do come to them and say, well, you know, that's good, but they've got a butt too. And and probably when he started this list out and said, circumcised the eighth day, there was probably someone standing back and said, me too, what's that big deal? I mean, I could claim that. Probably when he said, "Out of the stock of Israel, a few of them said, yeah, well, that's okay. The tribe of Benjamin, yep, yep, checkbox there. And on and on through the list, they probably continued to, to stand back and say, okay, he just told us that if anybody could boast more than him to come and, come and claim it. And he just made a list that was wonderful, it was great. But there were some few out there who said, yeah, me too. But when he takes this thing, and if you've ever been in a conversation with anyone uh, and, and got caught when they, when they twist it on you, that, that, I mean, that, they hit you in the gut. This, that, you know, the whole conversation turned around. And he starts to attempt to do that. He's inspired to do so, and he starts to pen these words. But what things were gained... To me, so he admits. You know, these things were gain. These things were advantages. These things, in their time and in their place, were all great. They were something that, if I chose, and it just said this up the page, if I chose to have confidence in this verse four, I would, and I'd have as much confidence as anybody and all everybody put together. But when it came down to it. Those things I counted as gain or really should have been counted as loss. And more than that, he had. He honestly had. I kept looking and looking and looking back over this text really often on all day today and kept arguing myself about the way that I would stand back and and view the whole context and view the whole picture and such. I think what Paul starts to explain to them is what being a true disciple looks like. What being a true Christian looks like. Now, when I use the word true, that's not just a matter of true versus false. That is a matter of true as in tested, as in pure. You know, someone might say today, they say, well, this is, you know, this ring or whatever, this is pure gold. They could also say, under this same idea that I'm trying to to present from the text, this is true gold. Pure gold is true gold. And, and so if you want to see a true gold Christian, a Christian who is pure, a Christian who is without blame, and we saw this thing up above, where were those uh, verses? We just mentioned them, or mentioned that word blame, blameless a moment ago, they were living blameless chapter two and verse 15, that you may be blameless, harmless sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of the crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights. Why is that, Paul? Because you hold forth the word of life. Verse 16, chapter 2. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not yet run in vain, neither I labored in vain. Now I got to draw me, I took this pen right here. This is a preacher's pen. I don't know what kind. You, anybody don't know about a zebra pen? And you get mad because you can't write in your Bible because it bleeds through. Go buy a zebra. Not a jail. Just a thin, medium zebra. I call it the preacher's pen. A lot of times when preachers are trying to just be nice to each other. Say, here, you want a pen? Yeah, if it's that one, I do. If not, you can take it back home. I've drawn a new arrow. And that arrow goes from verse 7 of chapter 2. And I don't care how bad it messes my Bible up, if you won't call it that. Back over to verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 3. Back over to verse 16 of chapter 2. Because Paul was presenting in chapter 2 and verse 16, basically, I want you to hold forth to the word of life so I can rejoice in Christ and so I can know, basically, that I've not run in vain, neither I labored in vain. Paul did not want to think that the work that he had put in was in vain or it was empty or it was useless, or it wasn't of value. Not only for himself, but in that verse, for the brethren. He wants the fruit that he's produced to be good fruit, basically. Because what happens to fruit that's not good fruit? Hewn down, cast in the fire. He wanted the fruit to stand as good, pure, trustworthy fruit. And with that aerodrome. I'm reminded that he's saying here, look, I had all these things that could have been worth bragging about, could have been worth boasting about, but I counted them lost for Christ. Because he's saying, I threw away everything so I wouldn't be laboring in vain. So I wouldn't be running in vain. I've referred to this, this will be, if if I finish what I'm saying, the third time we've made reference in this many weeks. 2 Timothy 4, 4 through, or 6 through 8. That middle verse there, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, and I have kept the faith. If I could draw an error from here to there and be able to see where it went, I'd do that too. I, I wrote the reference instead. Paul did not want what he had done in his life to end up being in vain. Yes, faithful to the faith, faithful to the fight, fight, and faithful to the finish. That's that's what Paul is saying about himself concerning his measure of himself. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 7. And so Paul right here is getting at, or about to get at, the same mindset, the same process. How valuable, not that his life was, but how valuable Christ's life was. What did Christ con- uh, uh, say concerning uh, the world and the possibility or the potential if and when a man could inherit the whole world. What was that worth to, to Jesus? What would a man profit if he could gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what would a man, next phrase, give in exchange for his soul? Paul is telling us what he gave or what he gave up but he didn't do it for himself. We've already crossed paths with a verse. Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ, and to die is gain. Why can you do that, Paul? Context of Philippians, verse 13 of chapter 4. He can do all those things through Christ, which strengthened him. It's hard to do that. If we were called upon, and, and don't think for a moment that we're not called upon, albeit not as physically, but if we were called upon to, to and we'll go back through this list and try to put it in more uh, our terms. If we were called upon to throw away basically our family, to throw away our associates, that's the Pharisees, our friends, to throw away our livelihood, because what he, was, he, he thought his business was to persecute the church throw away our careers, to, to throw away everything we've ever known and to trade that out for something completely new and completely foreign to our past, it would be difficult to do. It would be difficult to make that exchange. Paul says, I counted it all for loss. Now, he's going to rephrase that uh, several different ways and several different times in this. He says in verse 8, as he start. yeah, that's what he's about to call it, verse 8. And yea, doubtless, I count all those things but loss. I've got an error from that loss to this loss. I got an error from that count, verse 8, to the count in verse 7. Account is a mathematical term. Does that sound about right? It means when I made a checklist, when I put them all down here, and this list is pretty lengthy, uh, pretty impressive, uh, pretty, you know, it's pretty everything. And then all I wrote beside that was Christ. The scales tipped. That's it. Everything he could have put on the balance of this side was upended with Christ. Is that true about any of us? It's not true about any of us because it's true about all of us. At least should be. So he says, uh, yea doubtless, I counted all things but lost. Why would you do that? He said, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss, same word, of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now, I've circled all the word counts. I've circled all the word loss or to be lost. I've circled the word, I've a every word in here, it looks like. Because he understood that. He counted it but dumb. He counted it but rubbish. He counted it but trash. And so again, these people, if and when they were boasting, they said, well, you know, he named all that stuff. I'm saying what? Throw it away. Worthless. He said, I'm not trying to run in vain. I don't want to fight, is what he told the Corinthians. I don't want to fight as one who beats against the air. What does a shadow boxer get? What victories does he have? None. Doesn't matter his skill. Doesn't make any difference. Someone says, well, I'm going to run a marathon. Okay, that's good. Where are you going to run it? Well, I'm going to run around Chihuahua. Okay. Who's in in this race with you? Nobody. What do you win? Self-victory? Why did you run? Self-satisfaction? He counts all that but lost. We'll pick up there next week. Thank you for your attention and your comments.